Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Russell. I'm the editor of the New Statesman now. Not on a permanent basis. Uh, he is Jason. He's the normal editor. They were having some problems with him, so I've been asked to step in. Look at this issue. Shepard Ferry done that. He's a brilliant artist. We're talking about revolution. We've got contributions from Diablo Cody, uh, that's won an Oscar. That's good. She's writing about aliens. Naomi Klein, she's a journalist or psych. And, uh, she's writing about climate change and the necessity for a revolution in our thinking around climate change. We've also got Noel Gallagher. He's done his best to use human language, but it's more like sort of shrieks and squeals that come from any simian creature a little bit lower down on the evolutionary scale. Gary Lineker, a football revolution. David DeGraw, he's a proper revolutionary. He's talking about economics and all that kind of stuff. Noam Chomsky's involved. Amanda Palmer, look, I've got a list here just to let you know that's what goes on behind, yeah? In fact, what's really required is a revolution in consciousness, a revolution in the way we see information, a revolution in truth, and that's what we're talking about. Rupert Everett, Alec Baldwin, David Lynch, Paul Mason, I don't actually know him, unless I'm exposing my ignorance there, I bet he's bloody good. Graham Hancock, he's out there, that guy, he's saying that we should access new realms of consciousness through psychedelics, then bring that information back to our society and evolve together. Dave Shrigley, he's well funny. Pinchbeck, he's like a uh, sort of a contemporary shaman. And me, I'm going to be going out on a limb to say stuff that causes trouble. I'm going to be talking about our leaders that we have now, what I reckon of them. Boris Johnson, David Cameron, George Osborne, Maggie Thatcher, your boys are going to take one hell of a beating by the new statesman. I'm Russell Brand. This is a thing, what I have done. Jason, you can have your job back. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jason might have his magazine back, but I've got the podcast back. My name's Helen Lewis. I'm the deputy editor of the New Statesman. Today, I'm going to be talking about Labour, Energy and the SNP with Raphael Baer and George Eaton. And our new blogger, Ian Stebman, is going to tell me about how to 3D print an armchair out of fungus. Yes, you heard that right. I'm joined by Raphael Baer, our political editor, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, to talk about the week in politics. Um, let's start, George, with um, John Major. Rehabilitated at last, the Cones hotline forgotten. So tell us about what he did this week. He turned up at the press gallery lunch in uh, Westminster on Wednesday and started, unusually for Major, firing off stories. And so the most interesting intervention, which actually came not in his speech, but in response to a question from the floor was on energy, where he called for this uh, windfall tax on the profits of the big big six. 
um, my reaction was initially to wonder, was this a bit of toy kite flying? Was he sort of road testing this on the toy's behalf? Soon became clear that wasn't the case. And Downing Street described it as interesting, which is you know, a euphemism for very unhelpful. As we saw at Prime Minister's Questions yesterday, where Ed Miliband's... Um, quite brilliantly actually picked up Cameron's line that anyone who wants to intervene in, in energy is living in the Marxist universe and says, has the red peril now infected John Major? And what was really odd was that Cameron didn't seem to have a witty riposte to that. He had almost 24 hours to prepare for, for that and just seemed, I'd never seen him looking so helpless. I mean, by the end, he looked like a beaten boxer sort of desperately waiting for the bell. He even stood up before Miliband had finished speaking and Miliband sort of signalled him to, to sit down again. I mean, with the exception Ooh, of the Syria phrase, I've never seen him look more weak or more helpless. Yeah, it was, it was the most comprehensive defeat of David Cameron by Ed Miliband in a comments performance I've was seen. It, was it an Ed Miliband win or a David Cameron loss, though, if that makes it sense? Was, it was an Ed Miliband win... Um, because he took control of it, and you felt you had you, you get that sense with the in the, with the exchanges uh, that every time David Cameron stood up to try and come back, he couldn't get back into couldn't sort of rest control of of the exchange. Uh, that obviously means it was an unusually weak performance by Cameron, um, but nonetheless, um, you know, when there's an open goal, it's not unheard of for Ed Miliband to sort of spoon the ball over the bar, and so to actually you know plant the ball very resolutely in the back of the net even when the goal is open, that still counts as a Miliband win. But you wrote, Raph, earlier this week, that you think it's unlikely that the Tories will come out immediately with a kind of instant riposte to this. Well, interestingly, I mean, they sort of had an instant riposte to the extent that Cameron said, oh, OK, well, we'll scrap all green taxes um, because there is a, you know, there are renewable subsidies that make their way onto your fuel bill, which arguably, you know, you can get bogged down in the detail, but make them a little bit more expensive than they might otherwise be. I don't think they'll get any traction from that. There are two reasons why the Tories um, said that. Uh, first of all, because they think it's all polit entirely political. There's no economics in it. They Essentially, they think um, you, if you get the conversation onto green taxes, then you can start talking about Ed Miliband's legacy when he was... Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change, and somehow you can say, Which well, actually, it's your legacy, it's your fault. That so he is... put these green taxes well, on the start. Well, yes and no. Like... I mean, some of them, uh, this has been a, a long-standing policy to try and affect the transition from um, energy sources that are completely unsustainable and very expensive to ones that in the long term might be more sustainable or renewable. So uh, that's, but you can easily make the argument, Ed Miliband, um, as a sort of economically illiterate hippie back under the last government, who not you know, unentitled to be prime minister, he does look like a hippie. Um, well, they have not in a suit. Uh, they hope uh, <laughs> down in in Ed Miliband's office. But anyway, that's a separate issue. The you can try and pin this stuff on him. So that's one reason. And the other reason is that the both ideologically and politically, they feel very strongly at the top of the Conservative Party that the way to respond to this whole cost of living assault is not to say we can rummage around in our little goodie bag of wheezes and gimmicks and give you a present voters. It is to grow the economy and then cut taxes because then you get more money in people's pockets. And they believe that on principle and they believe that's better This politics. is this weird metaphor of growing the pie, isn't it? Which is someone needs to talk to them about. Actually, they should watch <laughs> The Great British Bake Off because if you grow the pie, then your slice of the pie is automatically larger. Um, which brings us very neatly onto nuclear power. Like, great segue. <laughs> the nuclear there. pie. <laughs> the nuclear pie is also growing. Um, exploding, hopefully. Um, hopefully not, not actually. No, no, no. no, 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 no
Okay. We wrote in the media this week that the, um, the new nuclear power, we think is a good idea. We think renewables aren't really ever going to bridge the energy needs. But, George, we have some reservations about the way that this is the Hinkley power plant is being funded. Yes, absolutely. I mean, here's the, here's the government that has said um, it's, it's an act of socialist madness to freeze energy prices for two years. They've now guaranteed uh, the French state-owned EDF and Chinese state companies uh, energy prices for 35 years at twice the current market rate. There are a lot of people who actually think that prices will rise by much less than that or even fall if there's this uh, huge ex- big abundance of uh, shale gas. And then, which has which has brought prices down in, in the U.S. And what that means is that it's then the British taxpayer who will pick up the bill for that in in the form of the subsidy, um, while it's uh, while their Chinese and French counterparts will benefit. Which I think is very peculiar. You think, well, hang on a minute. The, the French and the Chinese must see some reason yeah. that, that this is a massive upfront investment is going to be pay off them in the long run. What do they know that that we don't? Well, no. What they what they're prepared to do is subsidize upfront transparently at the taxpayers expense because they recognize there are reasons why you might want nuclear as one of your energy sources but they also recognize that commercially left to the market no one is going to build a nuclear power station without state guarantees and this is why this has been a sort of you, you you could you could see particularly this is a problem for the Lib Dem policy because they went from saying we hate nuclear you know can't we just eat yogurt and wear sandals instead to saying well okay if you must do nuclear well we're not going to spend any public money on it and that was a particularly ridiculous position because everyone every expert in the field will tell you mm-hmm. you need a subsidy to guarantee this in the long term even if there are benefits in terms of of, of security of supply and uh, and long term cost coming down and the rest of it so. They've sort of got themselves into the situation where they have done something, you know, if they want energy in the the nuclear in the mix, they have done the thing that everyone says they have to do. But they've had to do it in this way that sort of makes them, it has a kind of deceptions and subterfuge sort of built into the process. So they're not, can't really get any credit for it. If they just accepted that, you know, they were in, as it comes back to this point about the sort of ideological squeamishness about saying this is an intervention or a subsidy, it's both obviously, but they've had to structure it in a way that might not actually be great for Britain, or as good for Britain as it might have been if, you know, in 2010, they'd been honest about what they thought was required. And just to talk about Scotland for a minute, um, Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP said they would have a 5% cut to energy bills if they get mm. independence, which is this odd idea that actually they're, they're kind of running an election campaign, they're offering kind of giveaways and, and freebies. Doesn't that make it very hard for the Better Together campaign, who haven't got anything to offer they can only offer where well, you'll get whatever everyone else gets in the general election that's right but i think labor have slightly drawn some of the sting from the smp attack because Miliband has actually started talking about what he'll do in 2015 one of the things alex salmond hoped after he won a majority and planned uh, to go ahead with the, the referendum is that he would be able to warn scottish voters if we don't get independence, then we are going to be under the under the Tory under the Tory yoke under the under the um, for a second term majority Conservative government. That's looking much less likely now. And Ed Bellaban has come out and said, "I will scrap the bedroom tax. I will freeze energy prices." Um, and now the SNP campaign on, on the bedroom tax slightly deflated by that. But you know, I think I think the SNP definitely feel as if there is still mileage in the idea that Labour still is unwilling to, to mount a full res- resistance to 
tutorial austerity and a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com you know the, the scotland is a distinct country from England in terms of its attitudes to welfare and to the economy and 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 and, and the S and P represent that, but I think the polls will narrow. But I, I can't see I can't see you. It, it would require even even for a politician as talented and as astute as Alex Salmond, sort of uh, an incredible an incredible comeback. Well, on that note, I'll leave it. Thank you very much, George and Rath. Thank you. Some of you may remember a late, great departed blogger called Alex Hearn, who used to talk to me quite a lot about science. Well, we've got a new Alex Hearn, a better Alex Hearn. Don't tell him I said that. Um, welcome to Ian Steadman, who's just joined us as our science and tech blogger. Hello. Thank you. I'm slightly taller. I, I can't say... You are either. one and a half I Alex Hearn. I can't Hearns. say whether I'm better yet, but I'm taller. Well, I'll, yeah, maybe I'll get I'll, I'll commission a poll or something. Or, or Alex can solicit some comments now that he's at The Guardian yes. as part of their open journalism programme. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, uh, I think, maybe the best headline we've had on the site this week, which is, would you sit in an armchair grown from a giant fungus? Mm, I would. Would you? Um, <laughs> I, I was much more reassured when I found out that... Based, so basically, talk us through the uh, what happens. It's, yes. not, you, it's in plastic, isn't it, the it's, fungus? It is in plastic, so you don't actually have to touch it. Don't worry about that. Um, but this is 3D printing, which um, I don't know. Have you done it on the podcast before? I'm not sure we've ever talked about 3D printing, but basically the idea that you can create a three-dimensional model of something and mm. then create it out of either paper or metal, so you can put yeah. metal powder and then run an electron beam or a laser through it. Yes. Or plastics. Cheap, crappy-looking plastic. Yeah, stuff, oh, well, which is you a can lot get some really good happen. plastics these days, but it's more expensive. But the price is kind of dropping. Um, and and the thing that's really exciting about it is that you can sort of scan in anything and recreate it. You can download uh, models for stuff off the internet and things like that. You can really kind of, um, in the same way you could pirate music, sort of ten, fifteen years ago, you can start thinking about pirating objects, which is quite a strange thing to think about. But that's where it seems to be heading. I like that you um, say that like that's definitely a good thing and might not be finally quite... <laughs> the thing that kills off the newspaper industry. I Well, I mean, uh, I don't think it's going to kill the furniture industry necessarily uh, because you're still going to want to have furniture. You're not going to have... You know, there's always going to be a market for people building tables and chairs, but there's also going to start being like, you know, I've uh, broken something on my phone. Like, I want a new screen on my phone. I could go to the Apple store and pay a lot of money to have it replaced because it's out of warranty, or I could just print a new one using the right kind of material to make the glass. That's the kind of thing it is. It's um, can upset quite a lot of manufacturing standards and mechanisms as we understand them now. So what happens with the chair? You the say chair. you how do you print with fungus? That well, like um, this this was there's uh, some people been experimenting with growing things into shapes as a kind of. Uh, other material for 3D printing. This is a, a, a Dutch designer called Eric Clarenbeek who calls himself an artist of the unusual, which is quite accurate, I think. Um, and what he's done is, instead of printing with plastic or, or metal, he's printed a sort of mix of straw, water, um, so sort of kind of like a pulp, with what's uh, mycelium, which is like the roots of mushrooms and fungus. Mm. Um, if you've ever gone digging through a wood, you'll, you'll Isn't see that. Isn't that just corn? 
Um, I think it is kind Essentially of related sitting in a to kind of yeah. sofa hack from corn. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, I should mention that Ian's a vegetarian, but we I employed him anyway. Yes. Uh, thank you for not holding that against me. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the mycelium grows. How, yeah. How my question is how how tough is it? How hard is Apparently it? Apparently, it's very durable. It's, it's it's comparable to something like wood. Um, it grows through the the sort of pulpy mass where the water is and fills in the gaps between the straw and kind of creates this solid strawy mushroomy kind of material it's very light very strong you can sit in it he's created there's a picture on the website of it he's he's built a full-size chair that looks kind of like it looks a bit game of thrones it looks very games of thrones i mean you could do any shape but he did it that shape specifically because he said he wanted to show if it was like this kind of organic way of printing things could we grow ourselves the throne the iron throne yes you could except out of giant fungus with this you could do any any shape yeah yeah although you do have to uh, sort of watch out for mushrooms kind of growing off it because once they've filled out the whole shape that you've printed they start sprouting so he wraps it in a kind of thin biodegradable plasticky stuff sort of so as far as you're as far as it feels like it feels like a plastic chair but the material it's made out of is a fungus which presumably is quite ethical it's quite biodegradable if you yeah. took the plastic if the plastic's very thin compared to the amount of fungus absolutely yeah it will, uh, it will uh, the plastic itself is is meant to be biodegradable as well as the fungus um uh, you i'd say you could throw it away but if you threw it away it would just start growing again i guess so <laughs> it's unkillable yeah. essentially yeah you could grow yourself a new chair from your old chair if you really wanted to probably um, um, and then it's, it's a big debate in science at the moment so you have but, you know, there's a huge amount of excitement about 3D printing. The Science yeah. Museum's got a 3D printing exhibition on at the moment. Where do you stand on the from enthusiast to sceptic uh, line? I think it's going to cha- I think it's going to be world changing. I don't think it's going to be the most world changing thing that is coming. There are some other things that are uh, actually the KPMG did a very interesting report a few months ago, uh, looking at sort of technologies that are coming in the next 10, 15 years how much they're reported in the media and how realistically they're going to impact on this, like the economic impact. Uh, and 3D printing is one of those things that it catches the imagination because it's so it creates these fantastic objects. So it's written about a lot. But the... And you can use it for pretty much everything, right? So yeah. I was interviewing a guy who's grown a, a bladder, uh, which is it's great because at the moment if you lose your bladder, they have to implant you a new one made of intestine. Yeah. The trouble is intestine is designed to absorb, bladders are designed, to, frankly, to not absorb. So it's much better to kind of essentially grow a replacement. Yeah. Imagine you could print off, um, uh, instead of getting an off-the-shelf fake leg or fake arm that doesn't really fit you properly you can get one that's modeled on your real limb that you lost for yeah. instance stuff like that and there's a guy who's crowd um funded a, a for about six grand i think he's hoping to sell for the end a, a, a decent working prosthetic hand yeah it's not the highest tech thing in the world but i mean his belief mm. is that you could take it to the developing world where they you know, exactly you, you can't afford 150 grand and that kind of shows off exactly what the most important thing about it is which is the culture around 3d printing it's not just the fact that you can create these things it's that you you create um, it's you know they talk about maker culture the idea that you create your own accessories and stuff instead of having to rely on some company somewhere uh, injection molding something in China to their design and you finding which one of them you like you can just build it yourself that's what I really like about it because it reminds me a bit of I feel we you know our generation I, I lump you together with me on this one <laughs> but um, we missed out on that how exciting must have been when you had those early computers I've been reading the mm. um, Stephen Johnson book a levy book about hackers you oh, know, yeah. and about that kind of the excitement they would go down and they would tinker with it and that's I kind of remember a bit of that we had in you know, computers in our school that I did BBC basic and you could learn to program them. and then that's gone and now you get your lovely apple iphone that is given to you by 
Apple and you just take it, you just yeah. accept it. You get, you have to. It's a closed Absolutely. product. Actually, I uh, was listening to a radio show the other day. I can't remember what it was, but they, they were talking about why there are so many good hackers in Russia. And it's because the Soviet computers were so terrible that they had to learn how to hack well to overcome their limitations. And write really <laughs> tight code because you yeah. know, the thing was kind of on the they blink. They had like 12K of memory or something stupid like that. Where, um, so they really have to overcome it. And But yeah, 3D printing is, is going to change the world a, a lot in terms of bringing what is now quite a lot of centralised manufacturing, making, decentralising it again, sort of creating a culture of making, I think. But by law, I believe, when we talk about 3D printing, we're obliged to mention the Liberator. <laughs> yes, the handgun. So the, a defence, what's it called? Defence something. Defence distributed. There we go. Yeah, uh, yeah. A Texas-based company made um, these plans available. They were downloaded 100,000 times before the Department yes. of Defence pulled them off the internet. Um, yeah, and it's a working hand. I think the only thing it needs is a nail to create the spark. So you just hammer a nail onto a certain part of it. But everything, including the spring and everything, is 3D printed. And it works. Well, there's a one in the Science Museum. Unfortunately, it's in, yeah. it's in bits because it yeah. exploded. <laughs> yeah. And I know that Willard... Foxton, who we've had on the podcast before, he writes about tech for the Telegraph, has offered that if someone can home print a, an assault weapon by the end of the year, he will go and let himself be shot with it. Because he's convinced that it was more likely to do damage to the person who's firing it. Like. I, I'd agree with him on the first go, but I mean, <laughs> if you, it, it depends if he allows them to like have several goes, because that, like the first time they, they did the Liberator, it, it blew up. There's all these videos of them trying going out into the New Mexico desert or wherever and just shooting into rocks and things and it's just exploding. Do they get some? Do they get? Do they pull the trigger with a like a like one of those things we used to open the I windows just when in school? Big, I think they just wear big gloves. Wow! Like they're, they're brave. I mean, they're they're brave. Sort of, they see themselves as almost frontiersmen kind yeah. of thing. You know, they've got that uh, really American individualist individualistic spirit of um, sort of. I have this weapon that I've created myself and I'm going to defend it's, you know, it's all When about, the coming apocalypse yeah. comes and the government can't defend you, then it'll just be you and your 3D exactly. printer. Um, I don't think they're going to overthrow the US government with um, with 3D printed guns, though. They're, they're, I mean, a plastic gun, as it just sounds stupid because it is. It's too weak. You might get a few shots off with it, but... Um, I think the Liberator's yeah. single shot, isn't it? I mean, I think yeah. it warps... I presume it, it warps the barrel, yeah. the heat of it. I mean, you can't even get the tolerances very well on it as well. You need to be able to spin the... Oh, it's, it's, it's not a great gun, but it is a gun. But it is a gun. Yeah. And on that note, I'll say thank you very much, Ian. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, produced and edited by the New Statesman team. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.